So I felt that um, I should go to Psalm 131 this, this week. And then I was so chuffed to notice once I was reading it that Psalm 131 is one of those passages in the Bible, and they're not many, where the motherhood of God comes through. So uh, I thought, yeah, it must be the right one for today. So, because uh, we're a church of the Word and of the Spirit, so we've been doing a series. Um, last week, was it Adrian was, was it last week when Adrian was speaking? It was fantastic, inspired message from uh, John chapter 1 about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Such powerful, powerful words. And then uh, today I'd like to go back and think more about the, the Holy Spirit and being people of the Spirit and how wonderful it's been to enjoy his presence here today. Now, of course, there are people in our world who are quite negative about Christianity. A few years back, the Huffington Post, a left-leaning online newspaper in the US, although they have a UK uh, editor as well, they did a, 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 an article which was headlined this, Religious people branded as less intelligent than atheists in provocative new study. And there are many people who think, well, if you're a Christian, you must be stupid because you're stupid enough to believe things you know aren't true. And, uh, and I believe that is not the case, by the way. I think that's uh, uh, not correct. And, um, but in the article, there's a, um, a slide for this. This guy, who was one of the researchers, said this intelligence may also lead to greater self-control ability, greater self-esteem, perceived control over life events, and supportive relationships obviating or making unnecessary some of the benefits that religion sometimes provides. Um, <clears throat> well, I think this is... I just confirmed that I'm thick, so that's helpful, isn't it? And, uh, and stuff like that. It, it's not at all insulting, this, is it, uh, in any way? And, um, but actually, I've heard other very compelling research to say that while it's true that in academia... Uh, you know, which I guess people must be intelligent at university. Um, professors of, of, of the humanities are predominantly atheistic. Amongst professors of scientific disciplines, they are often people of faith, actually. So, it, uh, so I don't think it's necessarily intelligence that's the uh, common denominator. But anyway, um, <clears throat> the key attitudes listed in this little thing are, are things about, you know, I can do this by myself. I don't need God because I'm self-sufficient. And, uh, and that turns out to have a... There's a word that describes that attitude, actually, and that word is pride. And uh, pride has been seen in uh, many traditions, but especially in Christianity, as being a particularly dangerous and virulent thing. And I guess so, if you want to have the presence of God, um, it's, we're told that the humble will experience his presence, and pride is a barrier. So if we're desperate for the presence of the Lord, like we've been singing, if maybe during this morning you weren't moved that much by what was going on. Maybe there's a pride barrier that... And there could be other things. Maybe you've just grown unaccustomed to God's presence and waiting on the Lord. Because we live in such a busy world that it seems very difficult just to slow down, stop thinking about so many other things, and actually linger in the presence of God. And so maybe you got a bit cross, oh, singing those words over and over. They're so simple and stuff. 
do you know that's where it's good to sing songs with content we do that here we had some this morning but it's also good to actually dwell in the presence of God and that's what we were doing today so um, Christian leader in the States James Emery White commenting on the Huffington Post article says if you fancy yourself to be smart and indeed perhaps you are you are prone to pride Intellectual pride leads to a false sense of self-sufficiency coupled with a lack of teachability. You do not bow your knee to anyone, and if anything, others should bow to you. And that's the place of pride, isn't it? So I want to suggest to you that Psalm 131 is about the question of pride. And we need to look at this because we want to be a place where heaven connects to earth, where people experience the presence of God, because I honestly believe that if doctors could prescribe this, they would, right? And uh, because it is something deeply healing. So Psalm 131, just to place it in context, there are 150 psalms, they're the worship songs of the Old Testament, but Psalm 131 is one of a sequence of 15 psalms from 120 to 134, which are called the psalms of ascent, you know, like when you ascend Mount Everest, because they were psalms that were used when the people of God were going on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the festivals, and as they went, they would sing these psalms, and, uh, or, or, or speak these psalms to one another, it is believed. So these are psalms about going up to the mountain to meet with God. So they have to do with how we pre- are prepared and how we are made ready to meet with God. And uh, incidentally, I was just chatting with some other guys, other church leaders this week, and somebody said, you know, if you took the Bible and removed all the parts of the Bible that had anything to do with mountains or meals or money, you wouldn't have much of the Bible left. And it's quite a good observation. So Psalm 131 is about our heart attitudes when we want to meet God. And it reads like a a long, deep sigh in which the person praying lets go of trying to be God and lets God be God. And that's one of the major steps we make in order to deal with pride. Now, actually, you should always read Psalms in the context of the Psalms around them. I don't know whether whenever you're reading Psalms, you kind of wonder, why is this psalm next to that one? There was this really miserable psalm. You know, I went to this psalm to get uplifted, and it was really miserable. Oh, woe is me. You know, my life's tough. My enemies are defeating me. Where are you, God? Uh, but then you read the next psalm, and it's all hooray. Uh, you know, thank you, God, you came through for me, and etc. And And there doesn't see, you'd, you'd have thought they'd start with the miserable ones, and then about Psalm 75, it would trip into the happy ones or something like that. But no, they're all jumbled up together. And, uh, but I think there's something good about that because our experience of life can vary and be quite chaotic. So um, uh, I'm going to read Psalm 130 and then Psalm 131 and we have the slides. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. So he's, he's down in the depths. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. This is why he's in the depths. He's feeling guilty and ashamed. If you, Lord kept a record of sins. Lord, who could stand? Who would be able to stand if God really uh, kept a record of all our sin and shame? But with you there is forgiveness. Thank God. eh? So that we can with reverence serve you. So the whole purpose of forgiveness is so that we are restored and can serve God and can stand before him. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. That's what we were doing this morning in our worship. 
I wait for the whole, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits for the Lord. What a wonderful example the psalmist giving us. Because you know, when we're singing songs like we were singing this morning, just maybe your mind is thinking about that project you want to do at work, or you, that, that, so you're not bringing your whole being then. To discipline your whole being is such a beautiful and wonderful thing to do. And my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. God's promise that he will forgive all those who turn to him. I wait for the Lord, he says again. He's repeating, it's emphatic. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. You know, if you're on the night shift, you're pretty keen for it to finish. Right? My daughters work jobs which have shifts and do nights. I'm going to tell you, they're looking forward to the end. And it's repeated, more than watchmen wait for the morning. So Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself, right, it's not something he sends as a package, he himself will redeem Israel, the people of God, from all their sins. What a wonderful God we have. And then we move on to Psalm 131, and it's still a prayer. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quietened my self. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. That calves imagery is so relevant. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Father God, I want to pray that your word will live for us. Your presence will be with us as we look into your word. Your spirit will come close to us in this as well, I pray. Amen. This psalm is very personal, isn't it? My heart is not proud. I do not concern myself with great matters. It's good, isn't it? It's personal because God is personal. He wants to know you. He does know you if you've turned to him. And you know you can't outsource your relationship with God. You might think, oh, it's great that some of the people in church want to be in the presence of the Lord, but I'll just do serving, I'll help in the community and do good with little lights or food bank. No, dear friends, it's also your heritage to wait on the Lord. It's God's desire that you would know him. Now, you can't outsource your relationship with God just as you can't outsource your relationship with your children or your mother. Really? It might be good to give her some flowers and the flowers will sit there as a reminder that you popped round. But the important thing was that you popped round, isn't it? And, you know, I need, I think I need one of my teeth crowned. I got it repaired just before Christmas and he said, you know, you might need it crowned and it keeps being sensitive, you know? Um, I'm not going to crown it myself, okay? (laughs) I shall outsource that to my dentist. It's a good idea, do you agree? And, uh, um, if you're being sued, you know, get a lawyer. It's a good idea. Um, 
So outsourcing can be very wise, but there's some things you can't outsource. Maybe you're running in the London Marathon at the end of April. Yep. Um, it, training for that would be hard work, so if I was going to be running the London Marathon, I'd find someone who would train up instead of me. <laughs> I mean, it would be good to outsource that, wouldn't it? <laughs> Duh. It's not going to work, is it? So if you have a spouse, husbands, if your wife needs surgery, and some of the wives of people in the church have needed surgery even this year, don't do it yourself. Right? Well, even if you're a surgeon, don't do it yourself, actually. It's not good practice. Um, but if she needs TLC, you make sure you do that yourself. Right? And do you have children? You know, again, we outsource the education of our children, don't we? We might put our children in childcare and things like that. But we, we need to spend time with them. I, I met Damien Stain uh, this last week. He's um, one of the leaders at the Catholic Charismatic Community here in Chertsey called Coret Lumen Christi, I think it is. It's a Latin name. Uh, they're great, great people, travel the world doing miracles in God's name, and uh, wonderful people, and do some, um, some great meetings locally as well. But they have a, some of the, them live together in a community here in Chertsey, and they say about the families, they all have a front door, and the family is very important. He says, family is the building block of community. Family is the building block of society. They are important things, families. But one of their rules of their community is that each parent should spend half an hour on their own with one of their children each day. Right? How about that? And what's more, they say that you should do with your child during that half hour what the child wants to do. And so he told this story, he said, so when one of his daughters was young, Frequently, she used to say, so when this happened the first time, she said, okay, Daddy, you know, what would you like to do? Daddy, I'd like to do makeup. <laughs> okay, he's thinking, you know, I, you know, I'm not very good at that kind of thing. I don't, um, and she said, no, not me, Daddy. You. <laughs> and, so, and so she would, she would do like face painting, I suppose, on her Daddy, and that was what he had to commit to. You know, it takes some humility to do that, doesn't he? But he was waiting, spending time with his child. And, uh, and she's now much older and um, remembers these things very fondly. So this psalm is personal. But the other thing about this psalm is it's so confident, don't you think? My heart is not proud, Lord. You're still showing that? Right? My heart's not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. It's really confident, isn't he? I wonder, do you, do you have that kind of confidence? Because a lot of us British people, we're very apologetic, aren't we, and self-deprecating and uh, um, not at all certain about ourselves. And here am I potentially giving a bit of a sermon about humility. And, you know, I haven't quite published my book, Humility, and how I got it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things you're kind of going to dodge if you can, isn't it? And um, so... Sometimes people think that when you become a Christian you, and you've got to be humble, that means you've got to be even more tentative and uncertain about everything. But I want to say that is not true. Where the Bible, where God doesn't give an opinion, you should be tentative. But where God has given an opinion, we should be confident and certain. Right? That's our calling. That's our confidence we can have. And thank God we have a book that he's given us where God expresses and declares to us so much truth upon which we can stand and about which we can be confident. But, but about this, you know, I mean, he says here, my heart is not proud, Lord, my eyes are not haughty. There is nothing in this psalm to tell us that how the psalmist prays is wrong. Yeah? 
You've read it with me. There's nothing here to say that how this psalmist prayed was wrong. Therefore, this represents a kind of prayer. And we need to put it alongside Psalm 130. We're in Psalm 130. He was saying, my heart's downcast. Can you have mercy on me? And then growing confidence in God's mercy. Yes? But here, this 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 is quite different. It starts out, my heart's not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. To be haughty is to look on others as if you're better than they are, right? Confidence in God's presence is something God wants for us. He wants us to live in Psalm 130 and Psalm 131 at the same time. And that's why these psalms are often put together, because that's a good place to be. A place where we know we need his redemption, but there is full redemption in God. There is forgiveness of sins in God. But also that place where we can say, my heart's not proud. My eyes are not haughty. And prayer that pleases God, I believe, has confidence about it. God wants you to be confident. Some of you know, actually, you're not very confident people. And I want you to have, a, have a, an ambition that you would become confident because it's God's wish that you would become confident. It's God's plan. This is how people who walk with God become, as God works in them by the Spirit. They become confident. Now, now you say, oh, yeah, but, you know, I might get arrogant or I know some people, they're really arrogant. And, um, well, yes, there is a danger of becoming arrogant, but my observation is that for most Christians, their danger is they're not confident enough, not that they are overconfident. And maybe you get a good friend who you talk with and say to them, give them permission, look, if I'm getting overconfident, would you tell me? And then you've put some protection in, yeah? And you can so really explore growing in confidence um, because God wants us to be confident. He wants that, that... Let me ask you, if people had been shadowing you the last week, listening to the way you spoke at work or wherever you went, would they say your speech showed confidence or not? Friends, I want to say to you, God wants you to be someone who speaks confidently. And above all, speaks confidently. This is a prayer, so this is how he's speaking to God. And... Um, and he, it finishes, verse 1 and 2 is a prayer, but verse 3 is a statement to his friends in the people of God. He says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. There's a sort of confidence in this. And we can have that kind of confidence in how we speak to uh, each other and also how we speak to ourselves. And there's this famous um, quote uh, that we, we've often thought about in the church from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think it's on a slide there, Peter. Um, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? It's a very profound insight. And God wants us to be confident in how we talk to ourselves. So, yes, there is a fine line between overconfidence and confidence, but as I say, you can protect against that. So I'd like us, I I was thinking, I came across reading Peter Scazzaro's stuff on emotionally healthy spirituality, excellent material, which I've um, been looking at for some years and finding great benefit in. 
Um, he talks, he there refers to St. Benedict. Benedict lived about 480 AD, very early on. And uh, he did, had, was involved with some monasteries, but it was much later on that the Benedictine monasteries were started based on his amazing writings. And he has a chapter where he writes about humility. Now, some of it I'm not sure I entirely agree with, but he has some excellent stuff. There's some stuff by uh, C.J. Mahaney, an American pastor, wrote a book on humility I've got, and um, C.S. Lewis writes about it. So just a few things about um, growing humility, because it's very hard to aim at humility, isn't it? You know, I'll be more humble, I'll be more humble. It's kind of, it doesn't really work like that, does it? So I'm going to suggest how you, we might get more humble later on, because I think it has to do with the presence of God and facing up to the fact that uh, there is a God and it's not me. <laughs> You're so grateful about that, aren't you? And, uh, but here are some of the things that, as we grow more humble, I think these things become true of us. So there's a, a slide for this. So there's the irritation measure, okay? Incidentally, these measures are not something you bring on other people. It's so easy when you're listening to a sermon to be thinking, oh, my husband better be listening to this, or, you know, my, you know I wish my neighbour was here, or my boss, or whatever. Now, just listen for yourself, right? Okay, so the irritation measure. C.S. Lewis said that the more pride we have, the more other people's pride irritates us. You know, there's that saying, isn't there? It takes one to know one. And I think there's a lot of truth in it. See, Benedict wrote that we need to be patient with those in our community who aggravate us. It's about whether we're willing to allow others the space to work out their own weaknesses in their own way, in their own time, or whether we feel we've just got to fix them and put them right because they're annoying us. Yeah? So many of you know Elspeth's already moved to Yorkshire and is living up there most of the time. So. We're having a lot of time apart. I'm going up to see her this afternoon. And unfortunately, I've noticed a pattern now which I'm predicting might happen again, which is when we get back together, I get irritated with her. Right? And, and so I've been exploring that and thinking about that. And I've worked out what it is. And, and the, the reason is that when you live on your own, you get selfish. Because you, when you leave something, it's still there when you come back. But when, you, when you're living with somebody else, you might leave something somewhere, and when you come back, it isn't there. And then you, and, and, but you get a, a, accustomed, even just in a couple of weeks, you become accustomed to it being, and then there's aggravation, and I, and I need to overcome that. So, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. Help me, help me, right? Remember, Andrew, there is a God. It's not me, and... <laughs> The universe does not revolve around me. Isn't, isn't that right? Therefore, she's allowed to move things in the house too. Yeah? It's, the logic's impeccable, but, you, don't, but you, just, you just get irritated. Lord, forgive me. Okay? Second, the grace measure. Can you see the goodness of God in other people? Do you see God's grace and calling in other people? Or do you just have a long list of their faults and failings? It's a big test. I've, I've found sometimes when relationships are going bad with somebody, when I think of them, all I can think about is their faults. That's not good, and it's not humble. Um, the joy measure. Um, C.J. Mahaney quotes a guy called Terry Lindval, who says this, Laughter is a divine gift to the human who is humble. A proud man cannot laugh because he must watch his dignity. He cannot give himself over to the rocking and rolling of his belly. <laughs> And you think that's good. 
So my dear brother here, who was being given some joy in the Holy Spirit earlier, was just exhibiting some humility of being able to laugh. We, 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 it's good to laugh, and it's good to laugh at yourself, actually. Uh, very good to laugh at yourself. And incidentally, it's Mother's Day. Children are very good at testing whether you can laugh at yourself, because children seem to have a built-in hypocrisy antenna, don't, don't they? And unless your children are oppressed, they will call you out for your hypocrisy without fail. And, uh, and you're either going to get proud and uh, pretend that they're wrong, or you're just going to have to admit it and laugh at yourself. So the next one, the honesty measure. Um, Benedict speaks about the ability to stop pretending that you are what you are not. It's the ability to actually confess our sins to another human being. Someone you trust, of course. Somebody, you know, it's a great day when you know that somebody knows the worst about you and it can become a habit. If you can get into that habit where you don't like people not knowing that thing you did, like when I didn't pay for the ladies' groceries in Sainsbury, there's something liberating about getting the worst of you out there, right? Yeah, some people will use it against you. I've had that happen. But it's still better to get it out there because it's, it's, it's humble to do that. The presence measure. Benedict talks about our being present with God more than with ourselves. The humble person is mindful of God and seeks his presence often. You know, to linger like we did in our praise and worship this morning in God's presence, it means you've got, you, you've got to assess, well, that time with God is more important than me planning my day, organizing the, my week, or do, using my mind in other things. It's about being present with God. And then the confidence measure. This is where we have no illusions about ourselves, but nor do we make our sins out to be greater than God. You know, sometimes you can make a big deal out of your failings and shame, and God needs us to get to the place where actually we know, you know, I'm just relying on his mercy. I'm not better than other people but I am who I am, and I am a child of God, and I am forgiven, and therefore I can be confident in God. And you see that in Psalm 130. He's praying his prayers of repentance, but there's a kind of underlying confidence in it that he will be received. He is accepted by God because God is a redeeming God and therefore is confident in that. And therefore he's affirming that God is bigger than his sin and his shame. Isn't that a good thing to affirm? Sin is an awful thing, but God is much bigger than sin. And it cannot and, and will always overcome it. So the tone and the content of this psalm appear to be somewhat at odds moving along. Because this tone is full of talk about himself, isn't it? My heart's not proud, Lord. It does sound like a boast, frankly. You know, my eyes are not haughty. You could read it as a really quite boastful. But actually, I don't believe it is. I believe this is a proper confidence before God. And I want to elevate the value of confidence before God in your eyes. That you would have a proper ambition to be confident in God. To have faith that all that he has said is a ground of hope. And you can be assured in it. Because it's those who are confident in God who will challenge injustice who will challenge oppression, who will make a difference, who will stand up for those who don't, can't speak for themselves. Such people are magnificent people. So 
Um, we're recognizing that there is a God when we pray like this, and it's not me because of the way he goes on here, right? So we have, if we have a desire to know God, then it's time for us to move into this kind of confidence that we are forgiven and therefore we can enjoy his presence and we can receive his joy and laugh in his presence. We can lift up our heads, as it says in scripture, because his redemption draws near. So um, he's saying then, my heart's not proud. You know, there is a good kind of pride. I, I, I define it as this. Good pride is pride in the idea Father had when he made us. Good pride is, is pride in the idea Father had when he made us. He had a plan for us, a good plan, and that's good pride. Um, <clears throat> Lord, my heart is not proud. It's about how I look at myself. He's saying, I don't see myself as better than other people. God, you know that. Look at my heart. I don't believe that I'm superior to others. And then my eyes are not haughty. That's about how you look at others. It's saying, I don't look at others as inferior to me. They might have different education, different skin, skin color, different gender, whatever. I do not regard myself as superior to others. I'm not haughty in how I look to others. And then I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. He's, he's rejoicing in the liberty that comes when you realize you're not God. Because suddenly you realize, oh, that's thank goodness. I'm not responsible for the whole world. Oh, thank you. It's just a massive sigh of relief when you let God be God. Phew! I don't have to carry the world. I don't be like Charles Atlas to use up. If somebody, if you're old enough, you know what that means. Um, those are great matters. How the world turns out does actually matter. And it is wonderful how the world will turn out. But it's not my responsibility. It is God's. Now, of course, you might think, well, is, is the psalmist saying he, he's giving up then on doing any good in the world or caring about things? And uh, on it, taken on its own, you might think that's what comes out of this. But when we look at the rest of Scripture, we know that God does care very, very much about issues of justice and mercy, about the homeless, the dispossessed, the oppressed. Fifty-five years ago, half a million black Americans journeyed from all over the U.S. to the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, and the final person to address the huge crowd, you, you already know who it is, Dr. Martin Luther King, where he gave that famous speech, I have a dream. Was he engaging with something, with great matters and things too wonderful for him? Oh, no, he wasn't. He, he'd got a proper confidence in God, and he knew that God was a God of justice, so he would speak up for those who could not speak for themselves. And that's what people do who have this kind of confidence. So... So let's not forget that. So how kids turn out in our neighborhood, how our, how our own kids turn out, how, 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 how education turns out, how our neighborhood works, these things that we care about. And so, yeah, let's go and change the world, but not by taking the world on our shoulders, but by working alongside our God. Once we know that it's faith, not worry, nor even work that changes the world, then you'll know that meeting God is the key to changing the world. Right? You're not wasting your time when you engage with God and spend half an hour worshipping him. You are preparing yourself to, be, to bring heaven to earth to make the difference that you long for. And then verse, verse 2 again, I've, we, I've calmed, sorry, verse 2, I've calmed and quietened myself. I've calmed and quietened myself. There is a practice of the presence of God. 
and we can grow unaccustomed to it so that when we have some worship like we had this morning where we were really pressing in, we can be unaccustomed to it. So dear friend, you don't just quickly maybe get accustomed to it, but I want to invite you to think when those times come around, to think, oh, now it's the time for me to, to practice being accustomed to the presence of God, engaging the presence of God, to practice waiting on the Lord to practice being present with the Lord, being mindful of him with my whole being. Seize every opportunity you can for that because to spend time with the Lord is a wonderful thing. And we're given the picture of a weaned child. How that powerful insight you shared, Nathan, of the calves and the crying they make. I can't say I have heard that, but I guess it's... uh, pitiful kind of cry that one would hear. Um, We have this picture here of God being like a mother, right? The motherhood of God, like a mother. Now, if you're my daughter, my granddaughter's just coming on a year old, so I've kind of seen in the last year freshly, because you forget all these things when your children have grown up. Um, She was just fed on the breast till about five months. NHS recommends that you don't do solid food till about six months, but people often start a little earlier because the child seems to be ready for it. And, um, and then you continue breastfeeding maybe up to a year. But we know in the ancient world they did breastfeeding maybe to three or four years of age. So this could be quite a lot older child that we're talking about. I, I don't know. But there's something in the picture. It's when a child is satisfied, nap is clean, is fed, the child will, a bit sleepy, they're just very calm and quiet, aren't they? You sometimes get videos, don't you, of a child in their high chair, and they've eaten, they're all happy, and then they're just falling over onto them <laughs> as they fall to sleep. They're just so, they're fed, they're satisfied, they're, they're weaned, they've had some solid food, and they just teeter over, fall asleep, because they're so calm and quiet. And we have this picture of this contented child Uh, Now you might say, yeah, not all babies are very contented. Well, it's true. Um, It's very true. Um, In fact, when Emma was, after she'd had the baby, I think, we sent a card, and this was the card. There's an image somewhere, Peter, you'll find. It's all words. Here we go. Um, I chose this. I found it at Wisley, actually, at the Royal Horticultural Society. It says, babies are such a nice way to start people. Children, reinvent your world for you. Having a child is surely the most beautifully irrational act that two people in love can commit. There are three reasons for breastfeeding. The milk is always at the right temperature. It comes in attractive containers, and the cat can't get it. Babies are always more trouble than you thought, and more wonderful. A baby will make love stronger, days shorter, nights longer, bankrolls smaller, home happier, clothes shabbier, the past forgotten, and the future worth living for. A baby is a loud noise at one end and no sense of responsibility at the other. (laughs) The worst feature of a new baby is its mother's singing. Depends. Even when freshly washed and relieved of all obvious confections, children tend to be sticky. A crying baby is the best form of birth control. (laughs) People who say they sleep like a baby usually don't have one. (laughs) Making the decision to have a baby, it's momentous. 
It's like to decide forever to have your heart go walking outside your body. That's powerful, isn't it? Uh, I don't wish to raise pain for people. There, maybe people here would like a baby. So making the decision to have a baby isn't always an easy one, but something powerful about that. But babies are a mess, but they can also be incredibly contented at times. So that's good. So how can we be like a weaned child then? Um, because, you know, most, even if this is a four-year-old, most four-year-olds, they're bothered about whether they've been fed and whether they're clean and warm and stuff like that. But I don't think any four-year-olds are making plans to take over the family finances. They're not trying to make plans for breadwinning for your home. They're not planning what home repairs need happening. And they're certainly not concerned about peace with North Korea. They're just calm. Yeah? They're accepting and happy. So let's let God be God. How can we be like a weaned child? Well, I, let God be God. Uh, Old Testament scholar called Walter Brueggemann, writing about this psalm, says that anxiety is a consequence of our attempts to be self-sufficient, to be mother, to be God, to make the world turn out right. So let's let go of that foolish pride. When we know that God is on the throne, we can have faith to entrust the universe to him and our own todays and our tomorrows. Will you do that? And then you can start to enjoy God's presence because you can let go of your anxiety. A friend of mine called Al Semple, he has this fridge mag magnet, says, Good morning, this is God. We've got a slide of this. Good morning, this is God. I'll be handling all your problems today. I'll not need your help. So relax and have a good day. Now, I'm not saying you don't need to do things. Issues that are problems we need to do something about. But the question is, do you do it trusting in God or do you do it hopelessly? Second, be obedient. Right? Seriously, I think, listen carefully to me, but be obedient. Right? Have faith is the first one in a sense. And the next one is be obedient. You know, I remember as a child, when I was in most distress was when I was being really mischievous and naughty. And a child can get into like a a cascade of naughtiness. You start being naughty and it just gets totally chaotic. And actually, you are in, as a child, I remember being like this, you were just getting into a chaotic place and losing it. And I needed my mum or my dad to actually, you know, to just to stop me in my tracks, to discipline me. And, I, and then I could feel secure again because I had lost control, you know, and I was a, a, a slave of my anger, my annoyance, my frustration, whatever was going on and we help uh, those at that time. So um, I found, nevertheless, that continuous obedience is impossible. Anyone else found that? And I need God's grace. And this, of course, is where Psalm 130 kicks in. And so I'd like to read that uh, uh, next. So I think it's the next slide I've got to follow on. So it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, because you might think, you, you kind of sense the pride that's in you maybe. Say, oh God, I'm seeing this pride in me again, getting irritated with my wife, so I've been selfish. So Lord, hear my voice. He will hear you, he listens to us. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Hear me, Father. <laughs> I mean, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, well, who could stand? I mean, I, I'd, I'd have been lost. It'd be helpless. But that's not the case. <laughs> but with you, there is forgiveness. 
so that we can with reverence serve you. Yeah, I'm going to be able to make a difference in the world reverently because humbly I've come and just received this gift of forgiveness. So I wait for the Lord <sighs> because I know the universe is not going to turn out right because I have to work 24-7. No, come and wait. Rest in his presence. Draw strength. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel. Put your hope in the Lord. It's, it's just the same way that Psalm 131 finishes. Exactly the same words. Israel. Say to you, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel. How blessed that we know how he did that. In eternity, the Trinity had agreed it. Jesus came to redeem us. To redeem us from all our sins.